This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Anuja Vaidya, Senior Editor and Special Events Lead at mHealth Intelligence. As the regulatory landscape for telehealth evolves, federal agencies are increasingly cracking down on instances of fraud, waste, and abuse within virtual care. Regulators are taking aim at both administrators and physicians who bilk payers and the government out of millions. Earlier this year, the Justice Department charged telehealth company owners in a $64 million healthcare fraud scheme and indicted an orthopedic surgeon in a false claim scheme that cost Medicare $10 million. Today, Jacob Harper, associate with law firm Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, Krista Natoli, Executive Director of the Center for Telehealth and eHealth Law, and Ben Steinhaffel, Policy Director of the Center for Telehealth and eHealth Law, are joining us to discuss telehealth-focused enforcement actions and what providers can do to prepare. If you haven't already, please check out part one of this podcast released last week, where we discuss key trends in federal and state telehealth legislation. You can access the Healthcare Strategies podcast feed on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, and other podcasting platforms. Now, on to the podcast. Along with obviously trying to expand access and adoption, we've seen federal agencies also starting to really sort of clamp down on fraud and abuse within the telehealth arena, Um, especially recently, we've seen quite a few actions from the DOJ indicting players within the field that they believe have been driving up fraud schemes. So what are some of the key enforcement trends that you're seeing? Krista, could you kick things off? And then I'd love to hear from Jake as well. Okay, certainly. So I think the most important thing and the takeaway here is, is that we haven't actually seen a case of telemedicine fraud. We're seeing telefraud, which is different. So telefraud is where a person commits a fraudulent act using telecommunication technologies. And telemedicine fraud is where a provider establishes a relationship with that patient and uses telemedicine to commit fraud. And so the two major cases the DOJ is investigating are dealing with durable medical equipment scams and the prescribing of controlled substances. And in those two cases, we did not see an establishment of a practitioner-patient relationship. The practitioner actually had no interaction with the patient. At best, they heard a voice recording of what that patient's medical problems were, and then wrote a prescription from there, but there was no actual practitioner-patient relationship. And that's important because Medicare defines telemedicine to be a relationship between a provider and a patient, and there are certain guidelines that have to be established before that encounter is even considered reimbursable. And we talked a little bit about that earlier in the conversation, dealing with originating sites, the location of the patient, the provider restriction, there's only a certain amount of CPT codes. So that is the biggest takeaway that we need to, to learn from this is that these are telefraud cases, standard durable medical equipment scams. And so I, I want to pause there and, and hand it over to, to Jake, because this is really his area of expertise and love to, to hear what he has to say. Yeah, thanks, Krista. Look, I agree with where you're coming from on this. I mean, I think by and large, right, what you had with these sort of tele-fraud cases are things that we wouldn't call the medicine and the things that we've been talking about here today in terms of creating greater flexibilities or, you know, using this, none of those services were ever built, right? That was not part of the issue there. And so the things that we're talking about that, you know, Congress can fix 
through legislative action is really sort of what does a doctor bill or a PA bill or a nurse practitioner bill, and in what circumstances do they get the opportunity to bill? These fraud cases that are sort of pending with DOJ right now really aren't about that, right? I don't think we can ignore the fact that there is a telehealth component to them. I think we need to be realistic about that. But at the end of the day, those providers, you know, weren't doing telehealth health as we think about it, right? And and sort of the services that they were purportedly providing were, were so substandard to where we would want to see something from telehealth that I don't think that they, they make sense there. But I do think that in more generally, you know, the Department of Justice is dealing with across the board, you know, COVID-19 related issues at this point. So some of the fraud cases that they've brought in the past that you may have heard about were sort of pre-COVID. So there was no focus on billing or anything like that. It was just sort of these these sort of DME and, and lab cases. But now, as we've gotten to be you know 18 months into COVID, or maybe I guess it's more than that, right? We're talking 24 months, 26 months now, geez. But as we've got to that point, DOJ is starting to refocus its efforts on things that happened sort of in 2020, right? And it's starting to look really the low-hanging fruit, right? So the, the obvious, I build for a, a telehealth service or I build for a medical visit or whatever I build for, and I never did it, right? The patient wasn't there, that kind of stuff, right? Which, which exists whether you're providing services virtually or providing them in person. And so that's really what the focal point is now, but it definitely incorporates certain telehealth providers simply because they are bad actors and there's there's really bad actors in every kind of setting right and you're never going to get to a setting where there's you know zero bad actors and so i think that's although telehealth is sort of the new thing on the block and so you you have to approach it with some degree of skepticism the things that doj is concerned about from telehealth are very traditional kinds of fraud that have existed in the healthcare community, unfortunately, for decades. So that's that's sort of where we are with it at this point. Got it. So as telehealth use kind of continues to grow, or at least remains as popular as it is today, is there anything on the provider side that can be done to sort of be vigilant against this sort of fraud and abuse or, or to sort of prepare for any potential enforcement actions? Just any advice for providers? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the thing I would say on that is, while it's certainly difficult right now to understand all the rules given sort of the very rapid evolution that we've had to deal with over the past couple of years, the best I can't remember what the saying is, but I think it's an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, maybe. Is that, is that what it is? But I think taking affirmative steps to understand what the rules are right now and how best to implement them is going to be much easier to swallow than trying to defend non-compliance in the future on the basis that, oh, it was COVID-19 and it was a pandemic and I didn't know what was going on and it wasn't really that bad, all that kind of stuff. I think being proactive about ensuring that you're meeting the modality requirements in your state, that you're meeting licensing requirements in your state, you know, all of that kind of stuff um, can go a long way to not even having to worry about these kinds of issues. I do think that there are going to be audits. OIG is actively auditing providers right now, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? That's what the OIG does. There are federal agencies whose job it is, is to do audits and see what's going on. Frankly, in a lot of ways, they're trying to find out what the best practices are. And if you're a healthcare provider that gets a, a, an audit for telehealth services and you can wow OIG with your documentation and your processes, 
it's a great thing, right? Because they'll take that and they'll recommend to CMS, hey, everyone should do what this guy's doing. So I think we do need to distinguish between sort of the telehealth audits right now to understand kind of what are the best practices, what is the next step versus these enforcement actions, many of which are not even sort of in the telehealth community, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Prevention is certainly better than a cure. So uh, let's hope providers are kind of being vigilant from now on in. And that kind of brings us to the end of our time here. But I did want to end with just a perspective question. I'd love to know that if, if you could make any one telehealth flexibility permanent today, what would it be and why? Jake, what would yours be? Oh, geez, gosh. Um, <laughs> there's too many to choose from. That's that's the problem, right? They're all they're all sort of important. You know, I'd say, um, maybe, can I pick two? I don't know. Absolutely. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, okay. I mean, I, I think that while they're all important, I do think that particularly as we're dealing with the ongoing physician shortage, you know, I think that expanding the list of telehealth providers to include sort of everyone who's in the Medicare program is ultimately really important. And the fact is that, you know, virtually every kind of provider who's allowed to bill Medicare already should be able to bill Medicare for telehealth services. You know, that that issue is one that I've never really understood very well. So I, I would say that. And I think the other thing just sort of maybe not traditional telehealth, but one other issue or one other sort of benefit that I've seen from the COVID-19 public health emergency flexibilities was that direct supervision, which is sort of this Medicare concept, was permitted to be done by virtual presence of a physician as opposed to being sort of in an office suite or on a hospital campus. I think the jury's still out on that one in terms of whether that's had a material impact on quality of care, but I'd be interested to see more about that because I think right now, again, this is going back to my sort of physician shortage issue, right? We are requiring for a lot of different services, particularly on the incident too, to have some kind of level of physician presence. And it may be that that is not as necessary as we originally anticipated it was. And so I'd be interested in sort of more on that side of things. If, if we can sort of open up the practice of healthcare to more individuals and, and have you know better access to care because we have more practitioners of the service. Absolutely. Ben, what about you? If you could make one regulation or two regulations permanent, which would they be? <laughs> Thank you. Big question, but I would really love to see Congress make home an originating site. I, I think this is critically important for expanding access to care. And, and Jake noted physician shortages and, and clinician shortages across our, our medical workforce. And access to healthcare, especially in rural areas, is very sparse, especially in the mental health sphere. So the ability to, to see a psychologist in, in the comfort of your home without having to travel sometimes an hour or two to, to see a specialist, I, I think is especially important. I, I think it'll increase access to care. There's reduced stigma, especially for mental health, for seeking help. So I, I, again, would really love to see Congress make the home an originating site. Absolutely. And Krista, we'd love to have you end us off here. Thank you. I would say one of the waivers that has been made permanent, I'd like to see tweaked. So through the COVID-19 relief package, Section 123 has allowed those providing mental and behavioral health services into the patient home to be reimbursed. And that, that's a really big deal. The only tweak that I would make is, is that it requires a prior six-month in-person medical evaluation. That really should not be the case for mental and behavioral health. We should be able to provide care to these patients 
directly. They're already underserved. We don't need to add an extra barrier to make them come in person before they receive mental health services. So I would say that's a, it's a good thing, but we would also really want to make sure that the services are made available regardless of an in-person requirement. Fantastic. Well, here's hoping that many of those changes will come to fruition. Yes. Well, Jake, Ben, Krista, thank you all so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your thoughts. This was a very insightful discussion. Thank you all once again. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at avedya at extelligentmedia.com. That's A V A I D y a at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any healthcare related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. Also, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please do let us know. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 